This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Gender Reveals. Are you sick of hearing people talk about climate-induced wildfires? Shake things up a bit by inducing a wildfire with a gender reveal today. Welcome to episode 19 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Before diving into our main topic today, we first need to talk a little more about John Oliver, or as fans of the show Community call him, that professor guy played by John Oliver. Seriously, his character was British, taught his students by getting hammered and showing them viral YouTube videos, and regularly got himself into legal entanglements. It's like he didn't even have to act. As you likely know from last week's Wastewater Treatment Plants episode, John Oliver has been in a battle with Danbury, Connecticut the city where I was born and one town over from where I grew up, which is culminating in John donating $55,000 to local charities in exchange for Danbury naming their sewage plant after him. And last we left off, John's still been on vacation for a month and forcing me to do his job for him, but his week was pretty eventful. The Emmy goes to Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Congratulations, everybody. Congratulations, John. Now you have four more Emmy wins than Liverpool has Premier League championships in the 21st century. Though in all fairness to your favorite soccer team, you can't win a championship just by pouring millions of dollars into four-year consideration campaigns. If you could, the Premier League would somehow be won by Cutter every single year. While we don't know yet if John Oliver has accepted Mayor Boughton's condition that he visit Danbury for the ribbon cutting, we did get a hint in John's post-Emmys interview with Variety. And as a Connecticut resident, I want to know, are you dedicating this award to Danbury? As nice as this is, and it is very, very nice, um, my dream this year has been to have a sewage plant named after me in Danbury, Connecticut. And I'm close. I feel like I'm real close. First off, to whoever that Variety reporter is, excellent, excellent investigative journalism. I subscribe to your newsletter, and I can confidently say that was the best interview question Variety has ever asked. I mean, on the day I'm writing this, their top story was Damon Lindelof is superhuman. And unless he's superhuman at bungling TV show endings, making pilots go over budget, or getting overshadowed by J.J. Abrams, I really think you need a fact check on that one. So if John's saying he's close, I'm guessing that means one of two things. Either he's going to accept the offer on his next episode, or he's got another counteroffer. But regardless, I'm pretty confident he'll come to a deal. One, according to the mayor, he's already made several of his promised charity donations, and two, he's successfully gotten his name on a lot of stuff before. It's only appropriate that after many events in the 2020 Marble League, a marathon would close it out. These marbles are going to have to be at their fittest to bring it on home. As King Stardust and John Rolliver will get things going here and demonstrate the different lines and the different pathways around this course. Okay, who thought it was a good idea for a marble named John Rolliver to not just do a marathon, but demonstrate a marathon? Having John Oliver demonstrate a marathon is like having Russell Crowe demonstrate how to sing, or having me demonstrate a good hair day. So as John settles in after his vacation, I figured I would continue doing his job for him by diving into another major issue in Danbury, its history as the hat-making center of the United States. Because I know John has been quite interested in Danbury's claim to fame as the Hat City, but that nickname came at a pretty major price. 
During the 18th and 19th centuries, hatters, also called milliners, used a noxious chemical called mercury nitrate for processing the pelts of small animals like rabbits in creating felts for hats. Long-term exposure to the toxic mercury fumes caused damage to the nervous system. Their symptoms included speech disorders, erratic mood swings, hallucinations, psychosis and tremors, which were known as Hatter's Shakes. The mercury-induced twitching, also called the Danbury Shakes, after the city of Danbury, Connecticut. It's true. From the 1600s into the early 1900s, mercury was used to turn rabbit pelts into felt for hats, harming the health of hat makers so much that mercury-induced tremors were literally named after the hat-making city of Danbury. And I can guarantee Danbury didn't pay $55,000 to put their name on that. And beyond tremors, mercury wreaked neuropsychological havoc to the point where fur-felt hat-making became synonymous with mental debility. In fact, the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland was actually a reference to this very phenomenon. And of course, after years of workers' lobbying led Connecticut to ban mercury use in felt production in 1941, and everyone except for baseball players and insecure bald men stopped wearing hats, we haven't really heard terms like Mad Hatter and the Danbury Shakes. But mercury exposure is far from over. One, the mercury that was emitted by hat manufacturing never actually left. While Danbury has made drastic improvements to the water quality of the nearby Still River, the Housatonic Valley Association still found abnormally high levels of mercury in the river in 2019. And two, there are a lot of other sources of mercury emissions spanning far beyond hat-making or Danbury. According to the World Health Organization, mercury is still considered one of the top 10 chemicals that pose a major public health concern, and the Environmental Protection Agency estimates that every year, over 75,000 newborns in the U.S. may have an increased risk of learning disabilities due to in-utero mercury exposure. Mercury has found its way into our water, into our fish, and yes, John, into our sewage treatment plants. So today, we'll break down what problems mercury causes, why we're so easily exposed, and what we might want to do about it. But first, what is mercury? Well, in addition to being the planet closest to the sun, and the thing people keep telling me is in retrograde as an excuse for not responding to my texts, mercury is an element on the periodic table. It's a heavy metal that, in its elemental form, we often see as a liquid in old thermometers and old fluorescent light bulbs, but mercury can also react with other chemicals to form a couple types of compounds. Mercury can form organic and inorganic compounds, and this is where the real danger comes from. The organic ones are the form that most people are exposed to because they're found in a lot of seafood. They tend to be highly fat-soluble, which means they're easily absorbed through the skin, as well as the digestive tract. Exactly. Inorganic mercury compounds commonly come from coal power plants or factories where mercury combines with elements such as chlorine and sulfur, whereas organic mercury compounds occur when inorganic mercury combines with carbon. The most common type is methylmercury, which is the type found in fish. When inorganic mercury makes its way into the water, it gets absorbed by algae. When fish eat the algae, they then absorb the mercury. But fish bring in mercury a lot faster than they can get rid of it, sort of like hoarders with People magazines or Netflix with debt. Because of that, the mercury concentration increases from the algae to the fish. 
Then, when the bigger fish eat the smaller fish, the cycle repeats, and the mercury concentration increases again. This is a phenomenon known as biomagnification, where at each step of the food chain, the mercury concentration grows. That's why the largest fish, like king mackerel, marlin, shark, swordfish, tilefish, ahi tuna, big eye tuna, and Bruce from Finding Nemo, have the largest mercury concentrations. If someone is exposed to a high enough level of mercury, they can develop mercury poisoning, which causes damage to the nervous system and neurological, kidney, gastrointestinal, genetic, cardiovascular, and developmental disorders. Symptoms include loss of peripheral vision, tingling sensations or loss of sensation altogether, lack of coordination, speech impairment, muscle weakness, personality changes, memory difficulties, seizures, and more. And while any age group is at risk of mercury poisoning, even more prominent health effects occur when mercury is exposed to children or fetuses, as pediatrician Stephen Bose O'Reilly explains. The consequences are that a brain is damaged and the children will develop symptoms like tremor or coordination problems. And when a brain is damaged, it does not recover completely again. So even if you stop the exposure of these children, the symptoms they have, the brain damage they have, will stay there for the rest of their life. And that is terrifying. Just ask Michael Scott. You know what else is facing five Goliaths? America, Al-Qaeda, global warming, sex predators, mercury poisoning. So do we just give up? Thanks for spreading awareness, Michael. I can only assume you'll continue using your passion for justice to fight mercury poisoning and not, I don't know, organizing a fun run for rabies and giving the donation money to a stripper, bailing on a mission trip to build a school in Mexico, and breaking a promise to pay the college tuition of a whole class of students. So why does mercury have these impacts? Well, since mercury is stored in the nervous system, it can easily spread through the body. At the cell level, mercury can interfere with permeability, energy production, and detoxification processes of a cell, and actually cause DNA damage which leads to those irregular body functions. Mercury also dissolves in fats, which creates issues because the human brain is actually 60% fat, with the exception of your mama's brain, which is so fat when she steps on the scale it shows her social security number. And for a developing brain, these properties are particularly concerning, as UC Santa Cruz professor Peter Weiss-Penzias explains. In the brain of the developing fetus, we have the neurons, and um, at the end of the neuron is the growth cone, as those neurons are developing. And um, the mercury interrupts the growth cone and makes it um, inactive. Okay, and so if too many of those growth cones are inactive, then the neuron doesn't work and the baby is born with severe birth defects, neurological problems, um, and that is called Minamata's disease. Like Danbury, Connecticut with tremors, Minamata Bay, Japan ended up with its name on the neurological disease associated with mercury poisoning. From 1932 to 1968, the Chizo Corporation's chemical factory, which produced liquid crystal for liquid crystal displays used for things like TVs, computers, phones, watches, and calculators, dumped around 27 tons of mercury compounds into the Minamata Bay. 
Since fish from the bay was the primary diet in the region, over 2,000 people died, and thousands more experienced crippling injuries. These historical sources do remain important today, because even though Danbury stopped using mercury for hats and Chisso stopped using mercury for liquid crystal, once mercury is there, it doesn't really go away. Sort of like targeted Facebook ads for the pair of shoes you looked at in a storefront window six months ago, or Chris Evans' dick pic. And while we have made improvements to the amount of mercury we release today, we still have some pretty major sources of emissions. To start, let's look at coal, or as Snooki calls it, my Christmas present. In addition to being the most carbon-intensive energy source and the source of many other pollutants, burning coal actually releases mercury, accounting for over 40% of U.S. human-caused mercury emissions. Well... There are coal-burning plants there predominantly, and the coal has mercury in it. And so when the coal burns, the mercury goes into the atmosphere, and that's a form of elemental mercury that doesn't hurt you and I. But then it goes by rain into the ocean, and the bacteria there convert it to methylmercury. The fish can eat it, and then we eat the fish. That was USC professor David Agus, and he's absolutely right. Not only does burning coal emit mercury, but once it makes its way into the water cycle, it can spread its way through the entire world. So while the United States has been transitioning away from coal to cleaner and cheaper alternatives for some time, countries like China and India that have continued ramping up coal use and poorly regulating their plants are contributing to mercury exposure everywhere. At this rate, Mercury should be retroactively declared the winner of every single season of The Amazing Race, with the exception, of course, of Rachel and Dave. I mean, The Amazing Race was almost definitely the catalyst that led to their ultimate divorce in 2013, but man, can they travel fast. Even the Harlem Globetrotters aren't that good at traveling. Another major mercury source is gold mining, as described by this Environmental Protection Agency video. In more than 60 countries, artisanal metal workers produce pure gold for sale through a centuries-old process that is dangerous to human health and the environment. Mercury is used to separate gold from sediments and ore. When it's burned to extract the pure gold, the process creates a dangerous byproduct, airborne mercury vapors. It's true. Since gold and mercury form together to make an amalgam, gold miners in many countries use mercury to separate the gold from the rock or sediment and then vaporize the mercury, leaving behind the gold. And while there are many ways to mine gold without mercury, given how easy it is to do with mercury, it's still a common practice. And often, the miners facing these risks and impacts don't even know what mercury poisoning is. Just listen to this Indonesian gold miner. They say they know nothing about mercury poisoning. I don't know anything because I've been living in such places all this while. If I save enough money, I would head straight to my hometown in Jawa. I have not heard anything about it. All I know is to work from morning to night. Sadly, the disproportionate health impacts extend far beyond the miners. The shop owners who burn the mercury off of the gold in enclosed spaces are equally, if not more, affected, and the vapors, of course, dissipate through the entire community. And the list of modern mercury uses goes on and on. Over the last nine years in California alone, the Sacramento County Department of Health Services found 60 mercury poisonings linked to foreign brand unlabeled or homemade skin creams, some jewelry contains a glass pendant filled with mercury, 
Many cultures around the world believe mercury has magical healing powers, leading some people to very intentionally apply mercury droplets to the body, despite clear scientific evidence that mercury not only doesn't have healing powers, but has catastrophic health ramifications of its own. And mercury is often used in dental amalgam fillings to bond powdered alloys together, making mercury the third most dangerous part of going to the dentist, behind getting a lamp brighter than the sun shown in your face for a half hour, and having a hygienist stab your gums with a giant needle and then tell you you're bleeding because you didn't floss. And I really don't know why the hygienist always asks when the last time I flossed was. Like, dude, you were there. While we tend to focus most on mercury's impact on human health, it also impacts the environment and economy. Environmentally, we already covered one impact, biomagnification in fish. In addition to this being a human health issue when we eat those fish, mercury actually causes reproductive neurological and developmental issues for the fish themselves. And like humans, the animals that eat those fish, like loons, eagles, and otters, end up ingesting mercury too, which affects their ability to reproduce. Small quantities of mercury can actually kill coral, and since water cycles around the planet as quickly as it does, mercury can end up in some pretty unexpected places. And so with it, it's able to carry the methyl mercury from the upwelling, okay, into the coastal environment, and it ends up being deposited in the mountains. Well, from here, it enters lichens, which is a cross between a fungi and an algae, and you find them growing on rocks and so on. And then the deer eat the lichen, and so they accumulate mercury. Through the same biomagnification process that occurs with fish, the deer eat the lichens and have a higher concentration of mercury, then mountain lions eat the deer and have an even higher concentration, and now scientists are seeing extremely high mercury levels in California mountain lions. But some of mercury's scariest impacts come when we look at the economy. A recent MIT study found that the mercury and air toxic standards in the United States, which were adopted in 2011, amounts in $3.7 billion in economic benefit to the U.S. every year, and the Minamata Convention on Mercury, which was an international treaty with 140 countries to ban new mercury mines, phase out existing ones, control emissions, regulate gold mines, and decrease mercury use in products, would lead to $339 billion in economic benefits by 2050. That's the equivalent of adding to the economy one Procter & Gamble, two McDonald's, or 780 Peyton Mannings. And while I don't think the world could handle that many nationwide commercials, that is a pretty sizable amount of money. Those economic benefits come in large part due to reduced healthcare costs, and the fact that reduced intelligence across the population leads to lost economic productivity, especially when children are affected at a young age and have their education impeded. And since it seems like mercury is everywhere, trying to fix it or avoid it feels hopeless. But luckily, there is a lot we can do, and a lot we have already started doing. First, on an individual level, there needs to be awareness of the problem. And that is why I was so excited to find this. So here's the story. They set up a thermometer factory, where workers handle toxic mercury. They dump their waste in the local shrubbery. Excellent. Absolutely excellent. I'm not sure what I liked more, that she tried to make story and factory sound like a perfect rhyme, or the way she holds out the E at the end of every line. The only thing that would make this song better is if she added a harmony. 
Beyond awareness, we actually do know which fish contain the highest concentration of mercury, and particularly for pregnant women and children, avoiding them can make a major difference. To keep yourself healthy, uh, know where the poisons are, know that fish and many other foods have contaminants. As for fish, uh, if you like to eat fish, and you don't want to eat fish bigger than your plate, most of the time that's a rule of thumb that unless you're fishing out of a very contaminated environment, usually a small fish will be okay. What about on a larger scale? Well, as for coal-related mercury emissions, there's a few strategies. In the United States, coal use has already waned considerably, and many advocate for that transition to be accelerated to phase out coal altogether. While this is most commonly discussed as part of a solution to carbon emissions and climate change, a coal phase-out would consequently have benefits for mercury pollution and for the economy, given that there are now plenty of cheaper energy options. But specifically for mercury, coal plants can install what are called Activated Carbon Injection Systems, or ACI systems, which use a form of carbon that has small pores to absorb mercury before it's emitted into the atmosphere. And according to the National Energy Technology Laboratory, ACI systems have the potential to make some pretty major improvements. As of 2013, 56 gigawatts of coal-fired power plant generating capacity had full-scale ACI systems installed. These systems have the potential to remove 85 to 90 percent of the mercury in flue gas at a cost of $10,000 to $15,000 per pound of mercury removed. Of course, mercury-reducing technologies for coal plants like ACI systems cost money to install and operate. So policymakers in the U.S. and abroad would need to find ways to either financially incentivize coal plants to use them or mandate it, which would require either some sort of enforcement mechanism or another really sweet wrap. For artisanal and small-scale gold mining, there are devices that can capture mercury during the vaporization process, and there's also plenty of other ways to mine gold without using any mercury at all, such as concentration methods, which use gravity, magnets, or chemical properties of gold to separate gold from the other particles, as well as other processes such as smelting and leaching. Gold mines have the added concern, too, of educating their workers, since not only are they the most at risk, but there's often very fast employee turnover. And luckily, the University of British Columbia's Marcelo Viega has made a song for that. You'll be so rich, so your family, nobody see where you dump your mercury. You just called to say you mind it. You just called to say that you don't care. You just called to say you mind the gold. And we said that with nobody you gonna share. Again, excellent. My only question is, why are you singing about a miner who does dump mercury? I know teaching what not to do is a common educational technique, but it seems a lot catchier to sing about a miner using a mercury-free vortex concentrator. I mean, miner and concentrator is already a better rhyme than mercury and shrubbery. There's also a lot happening on the policy level to reduce mercury emissions, both internationally with the Minamata Convention and domestically with the mercury and air toxic standards. 
However, the EPA has recently revisited the mercury and air toxic standards, reversing its previous determination that the standards are, quote, appropriate and necessary. The EPA has faced objections on this from the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Lung Association, the American Public Health Association, and several other scientists and medical professionals over their proposed haltings of those standards in part because the standards are estimated to have prevented up to 11,000 premature deaths, 4,700 heart attacks, and 130,000 asthma attacks per year, and in part because many power plants have already adapted to the standards with new technologies. Rolling back mercury standards without some other plan to continue in a positive direction is sort of like rebooting prison break. It takes us back to an outdated era, and the benefits are extremely unclear. And while it makes a lot of sense to start with limiting current mercury emissions since they're the easiest and cheapest to limit, scientists are doing research on how to remove existing mercury from the atmosphere as well. Since mercury has found its way into more places than Starbucks, that's hard to do. But more research into that may be the next step toward reducing mercury exposure. While I'd heard of mercury before, I never realized just how important it was to the history of Danbury, and I certainly didn't expect John Oliver's quest to get his name on Danbury's sewer plant to teach me that. But as overwhelming as mercury is, it's really exciting to see just how many policies and technologies have already been implemented, and that they're having a real positive impact on the environment, economy, and health of people around the world. Because there's certainly more to do, but after learning just how far we've come, all I can say is, I'm close. I feel like I'm real close. Are you looking for a way to celebrate the birth of your new baby? If so, try one of our brand new state-of-the-art gender reveals. Now, with gender reveals, you can set off your very own forest fire. Cool. But wait, there's more. If you order in the next hour, you can get a special gender reveal kit that will melt Greenland, rise global sea levels by 5 inches, and strangle every single endangered elephant on the planet. Talk about a bargain. Gender reveals. At least an explosion lets everyone be six feet apart. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Noel Celine, a professor in the Institute for Data Systems and Society and the Department of Earth Atmospheric and Planetary Sciences at MIT and the director of MIT's Technology and Policy Program. Dr. Celine, welcome to the show. Thanks. So let's start with the big news. You've got a book coming out on October 20th called Mercury Stories, which you co-authored with your husband, Henrik Celine, who's also been on the podcast before. Could you tell us a little bit about the book and what some of the takeaways are? Sure. Well, the book is, as you said, is called Mercury Stories. Uh, The subtitle is Understanding Sustainability Through a Volatile Element. And the idea is that we can understand a lot about how people promote and achieve sustainability through looking at human interactions with mercury, uh, a toxic substance throughout history. So through looking at a variety of different human interactions with mercury, we try to illustrate important issues both in mercury science and governance, but also draw broader conclusions about how researchers, decision makers, and citizens can learn from mercury about the broader issues of sustainable development. So one of the stories looks at mercury's use in consumer products. So use of mercury in the thermometer. The thermometer contributed a lot to scientific understanding of meteorology and really better understanding how the weather and the climate works. But on the other hand, early thermometers contained mercury and the use of that mercury was also damaging. So how do you balance the 
scientific advances that relied a lot in early labs on mercury with the inherent danger of that substance. And those are the kinds of stories we try to dig into to really understand at what point should people regulate a substance, what kinds of damages are there, and what can we do about it? One of the great stories in the book that's related to the use of mercury in medicine is that mercury was used in the Lewis and Clark expedition. And it was given to people in the expedition as a component of laxatives. And so they used these laxatives, which according to the reports of the crew were quite effective. And 200 years later, researchers could actually trace the root of the exhibition by looking at where the mercury was in the latrine pits. So this ubiquitous use of mercury actually gives you a really broad insight into how many applications mercury had. And one of the things, one of the most interesting things that we found out in the book, and, and this is where I guess there's kind of a spoiler alert, is that over history, people have intentionally put mercury into every single bodily orifice. So we document each of those in the book, but it's a little bit of an Easter egg hunt. So you have to go through and, and, and find all of them, but they're all in there. So you'll have to wait for the book to find that one out. It's really striking to see how many consumer products have contained mercury. How do we as consumers go about figuring out what contains it and what choices we should be making? Is it something where we can actually not use any products with mercury or are we just trying to limit our interaction with it? Increasingly, a lot of products have phased out mercury. But historically, mercury was used, as you say, in a variety of different products. Everything from paints, pesticides, thermometers, barometers, thermostats, measuring equipment. It was also used in a variety of different industrial processes as well. So it was really widespread use. But a lot of the ways that we encounter mercury today is in stuff that's in use. For example, an old fluorescent bulb that might contain a large amount of mercury. So increasingly, there's regulations that prevent you from buying new products with mercury. But it's important to treat the mercury that's in existing products and make sure it's recycled and appropriately disposed of because that can enter the environment and then it cycles through the atmosphere. And because mercury is an element, and this is one of the really key parts of the book, it lasts forever. And one of the unique things about mercury is that the mercury that has been emitted over history continues to cycle and continues to be in the atmosphere and continues to affect people today. One of the stories that we tell in the book is that the mercury that's in a piece of sushi today could come from a coal-fired power plant that burned mercury recently, but could also come from historic use of mercury in gold and silver mining. I think an interesting piece of this too is obviously we talk more about the larger overexposures of mercury, but all humans are exposed to some teeny tiny level of it. Are there health issues at any level of mercury or is there some sort of threshold on how much mercury an individual can handle or does this vary person to person? It really varies and there is no threshold below which scientists have determined that there's no impacts. We don't know what the impacts are at very small levels of exposure, but increasingly as scientists are measuring those lower and lower levels, they're seeing that there could be a variety of different impacts. The higher exposure, however, the more worrisome it is. And in particular, those who have historically been occupationally exposed, uh, people who eat very high levels of fish and are exposed to a high level of methylmercury, people who are engaged or living in artisanal and small-scale gold mining communities, those are the people who 
we might expect to see the highest levels of, of impacts in terms of mercury. In your research, you actually calculated the exact economic benefits of the reductions that would occur under the Global Minamata Convention to reduce mercury. And it was really striking to see just how big of an impact it would have and actually see some of those hard numbers in front of you. Could you tell us a little bit about that study? How did you come to those numbers and quantify those benefits? Sure. One of the ways in which we can better understand the impacts of mercury is to try to trace what happens from emissions all the way to impact. So in order to do that, you have to understand, first of all, how much mercury is coming out of a power plant or how much is coming from artisanal and small-scale gold mining. Figure out where it travels in the atmosphere and then figure out how it accumulates in, for example, fish, what fish people are eating, and then calculate what kind of damages they might incur. And in the U.S. context, particularly the damages they incur in monetary terms can have a really important role in policy because it tells policymakers information about how they might prioritize reductions. So one of the reasons that we did that, this study was to compare the domestic mercury regulations, uh, the mercury and air toxic standards with the international treaty on mercury to say what impacts to the US would be seen if mercury emissions are reduced domestically versus mercury reduced internationally. And in some places in the US, a lot of the mercury deposition to the environment, so the mercury that's raining out of the atmosphere, in some places, that's mostly from US sources. That's mainly in places that are, for example, downwind of power plants. But in other places, mercury deposition and also mercury exposure comes from the global pool of mercury. Most mercury emissions globally come from Asia, where there's a lot of coal use and a lot of uncontrolled power plants. And also, if you think about the fish that people are eating, some people eat a lot of fish that they catch themselves or that are local to local ponds. But some people go to the supermarket and get fish that might have come from the Pacific or the Atlantic. So the study that we did was really trying to pull that all together and say, what are the different kinds of benefits we might see in the US population if you reduce these different kinds of sources with all of these different overlays going on? And in order to do that, we used a model and we connected a bunch of different kinds of models, an atmospheric model that traces mercury. And then we had to make some assumptions about fractions of people's diets, where that's coming from, the timescales. And we did a lot of uncertainty analysis, but we came up with the conclusion that the benefits of regulating mercury, both domestically and internationally are substantial in the United States. And once we monetized it in a way that made sense in the regulatory process, those benefits well exceeded any numbers on the cost of regulation. Some of the disproportionate impacts are because people in low-income and minority communities actually live near the source of pollution, and that's well known for a lot of different environmental contaminants. In the United States, the highest mercury exposure actually tracks with income in a really interesting way because the lowest income people and the highest income people are highly exposed. So on the high income, it's mostly the very expensive high food chain fish, think tuna sushi. And on the lowest end, it's subsistence fishers who are eating self-caught fish as a major portion of their diet. Another population that's particularly exposed in, in the United States is Native Americans. A lot of Native American tribes have a tradition of eating fish and would like to continue that as an important part of culture. I can imagine a lot of this would be more challenging for developing countries since these mercury emission sources are tied into a lot of other industries. 
So how do we support developing countries in limiting their mercury emissions? The extent to which developing countries and countries with increasing energy needs can use renewable energy instead of coal, that's not only going to benefit the climate, but it's going to have very real near-term benefits, not only for mercury pollution, but for also for other air pollution. But there are some other ways in which developing countries are particularly affected. And one of the big ones is also this artisanal and small-scale gold mining issue, um, which occurs, again, in, in about 70 different developing countries. And so dealing with the populations that are engaged in these artisanal and small-scale gold mining activities, oftentimes this is an unregulated sector in areas which have other challenges with governance, potentially conflict areas. So understanding what governments can do requires a lot of capacity building and assistance and thinking through potential plans. And a lot of that is happening in the context of the Minamata Convention as well. The good news for mercury and other air pollutants, even if countries are building more coal plants, which they shouldn't do in general for climate reasons, but a lot of traditional air pollution controls can dramatically cut mercury emissions. So there is some good news, even if it's limited, in the sense that solving some of the really urgent air pollution problems in places like, for example, India and China could also have benefits in reducing mercury as well. You've also testified before the Oversight and Investigations Subcommittee on the U.S. House Committee on Energy and Commerce on Mercury Regulations. And I'm wondering, what kind of advice are you giving to policymakers in the United States on reducing mercury emissions, either domestically or internationally? When I testified before the committee, this was for the proposal that essentially would lay the groundwork to roll back the domestic standards on mercury. So mercury is controlled from power plants in the United States through the mercury and air toxic standards, which came in in 2013. And what I testified to say was that we actually showed in our research that there are substantial benefits to the U.S. of reducing mercury. And that those benefits, when you consider them in a regulatory context, far exceed the costs of regulation. So really establishing the dangers of mercury and establishing the need to continue those regulations rather than to roll them back. It is one of the big environmental success stories from the U.S. and the U.S. was able to lead globally in showing that mercury can be reduced and it can be reduced in ways that benefit people and that aren't very costly. And what steps can we as individuals take to stay safe? Well, certainly for personal exposure, especially for those who are vulnerable, um, particularly pregnant women and children, to make sure to choose fish that are low in mercury and eat those fish and not the higher mercury fish. And this isn't just limited to pregnant women and children, but also the actions that people can take to reduce energy use that comes from coal would also contribute to reducing mercury emissions. So encouraging development of renewable energy, using less, and reducing carbon emissions would also be mercury positive. Dr. Celine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This wraps up episode 19 of The Sweaty Penguin. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe. And if you're a fan of the show, please tell a friend about it or leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so more people find the show. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.
Today's episode was written by Olivia Amate and Ethan Brown, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Frank Hernandez, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to the Boston University Build Lab. For bonus content, follow us on Facebook at Sweaty Penguin News, Twitter at Sweat Penguin Pod, or Instagram at Sweaty Penguin Pod.